0: Every issue that shows up in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganesanathan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Love Marriage.
1: And I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant.
0: And as our faithful, long-suffering listeners know, you live in Kansas City, the greatest of cities. Did I mention Kansas City, have I? (laughs) No, you never talked about it. you never talked (laughs) Um, about it.
1: It's the city of fountains. Oh, I, 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 and I, you know what? I even I kind of hate that name. Uh, but look, it's a great town. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm we're having a renaissance. Oh, according to who? Queer Eye. <laughs> the guys on that show are filming here right now. That is how you know that Kansas City is a, a, a cultural epicenter. Um, or is the fact that they're here mean that Kansas City is cool? I don't know. I'm not sure who decides that Kansas City is cool, whether it's them or us. But have you seen the
0: show? I don't, but they seem like a great example of how queer culture has gone really mainstream in the United States.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, speaking of which, I had an event the night that they were going to gonna do their <laughs> thing.
0: I heard something about this. I heard I, something about this.
1: It was like, oh, we're going to be moving our event because it's like the <laughs> Beatles, man. I mean, my students were like, oh, my God, when is this? When Because they're going to Queer Eye is going to speak at the library and everybody's just going nuts about it.
0: Oh, I love that Queer Eye at the library. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Kent City Public Library. All right, look, one is always concerned about being too hopeful uh, about this uh, with people like Mike Pence running around in positions of power. But it does seem like all kinds of presses are publishing queer writers and content and queer writers are winning awards and gaining popularity with readers. And we've been wanting to talk about what publishing queer themed content in the current environment is like and how queer authors think about they're changing audiences and what new...
0: So we're excited to have S.J. Sindhu, author of Marriage of a Thousand Lies, with us for the second half of this episode. But first, we'd like to welcome Garrett Conley, the author of the 2016 memoir Boy Erased, which has been adapted for a film directed by Joel Edgerton, starring Lucas Hedges and Nicole Kidman. His work can be found in Time, Vice, CNN, BuzzFeed, Them, Virginia Quarterly Review, and the Huffington Post, among other places. And he was recently named a Lambda Award finalist for memoir autobiography. Garrett, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be talking about books somewhat again.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what we do here, although we will talk about the film some, Uh, like our first question. uh, Boy Erased just premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival, uh, which looked like it was fun. Um, Like your memoir, it focuses on the horrific practice of gay conversion therapy, and it's easy for me. To remember a time when that movie would not get made much less star someone like Nicole Kidman and yet there's a second movie out now the miseducation of uh, Cameron Post that also takes on the subject of gay conversion therapy although with a female main character seems like a good thing but I wonder if you could talk to us about your perception of how open Hollywood and the publishing industry is to narratives about with queer themes today as opposed to five years ago or even ten.
2: Well, I mean, first of all, uh, I love the miseducation of Cameron Post. I saw it at the Tribeca Film Festival with my husband, and it was just a really glorious film. Um, And it was so great to see a queer director uh, and a queer writer really helming that project. Uh, And I was actually a consultant on that at first, whenever Chloe Grace Moretz was uh, playing for the part. So that was really fun to just sort of talk about my experiences through that. Um I think it's kind of amazing that we have two films right now about the same subject. I mean it's like our Capote year. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but but you know actually using a film instead of just doing, you know, a regular drama. I think these films are being used for advocacy and in the age of Trump and Mike Pence, it feels like a barbed attack, which I love. Um so I think I think Hollywood, you know, We're to be wary of Hollywood when they want to tell our stories. It it can be a very damaging experience if they get it wrong. Um, So I was a little wary of Joel Edgerton um, whenever we first met uh, because he's a straight man. But I'd seen him in Loving, that film about interracial marriage, and I'd seen how he used that film as a jumping off point to talk about marriage equality. Um, so I knew he was a good ally. And then whenever uh, I sat down with him, he asked if he could meet with several survivors of conversion therapy. And he began to uh, really look into, uh, you know, all of the materials that I'd uh, managed to abscond from Love and Action, the therapy place that I went to. <laughs> and, and he, you know, I saw this as a real opportunity for once to bring this into the mainstream because he's a very good storyteller. Um, and, and do it in a way that didn't water it down too much, but made it, um, perhaps function as a tool for people in, uh, in discussing conversion therapy. Because once you get Nicole Kidman and Russell Crowe in the film, uh, you know, people who might not otherwise see the subject will show up at the movie theater. And so, you know, even though there are moments where, uh, things have been changed or a little, you know, minutely Hollywooded up. I think for the most part the film has really captured the tone of my book and the message of my book, which is that we can end conversion therapy and save lives. And that this kinds of you know, this kind of bigotry doesn't come from nowhere and it still exists.
0: Um, listening to you talk, I'm reminded of we had uh, Doniel Clayton on and Aisha Pandey on uh, several episodes ago, and we were talking about racism in publishing and the way that people um, can research point of views that are not their own. And just listening to you talk about Joel Edgerton, I'm reminded of that um, process. And also listening to you talk about sort of who the audience for this movie is I'm curious to hear you talk about the role that this kind of representation plays. You know, does it change minds? We have a lot of conversations about um, storytelling and the effect that it has on audiences. And I keep thinking about the people in Arkansas, where you're from, or Tennessee, where the facility that you referred to, the Love and Action facility, actually is. You know, do you think they're reading the book? Are they going to see the movie? Does this actually move them in that way?
2: Well, one of the things that Joel said to me that I thought was really astute is he said, well, you know, anytime anyone writes or talks about or depicts Christians in film, um, they're going to watch it, whether or not they sneak it or they talk about it amongst themselves or it's on it's interesting. Like they're going to want to see how they're being portrayed. And I think what, what a lot of Christians or fundamentalists especially are going to find is that we aren't trying to turn them into villains, but we are holding them accountable for what they did. And I think that that's exactly what the church needs right now. It needs to have a conversation about, here's how we evolve. Here's how we become more inclusive. And here's what we did in the past, not just paper over it and pretend like it didn't happen. And I think that um, you know one of the things Joel very carefully did, which I didn't necessarily do in my own memoir, is he made sure that it could at least be seen by these people and that they could get a message um, of tolerance in, in sort of the language that they would understand. Because if we made fun of them, if we poked fun of them once again, which is what you know, conversion therapy has always been portrayed as in film, pretty much always, there are a few exceptions, um, I, I felt like we, we wouldn't have this great tool um, to use in places like the South and these these really small towns. And, I mean, it's a bit of a compromise, honestly. I... I would love to make a gloriously queer film one day. I don't think that this movie is gloriously queer. I think that it's a depiction of something that happened to a queer person that stripped away their identity, and it's a depiction of parents who've done something absolutely terrible that they need to ask forgiveness for, um, and and that doesn't, you know, the movie doesn't necessarily have that kind of. Um, you know, celebration that I often see in queer film.
0: You mentioned the language. Um, Are you thinking of any phrases or anything in particular in the film that you want to mention that you think is going to sort of...
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of lines in the film, even in the trailer, if you see it, um, where, you know, Nicole Kidman's character playing my mother says, I love God and I love my son. And, you know, nothing's going to change that. And there's also a really big, you know, um, moment. I don't want to give too much away, but there's a big moment with uh, my character, played by Lucas, where he stands mm-hmm. up to some people and he affirms his identity. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, in a movie where you've seen someone pretty much systematically stripped of who they are, it's astounding to hear someone come out on their own terms because the context makes you realize it's still a big deal for a lot of people just to, to say who they are.
1: Yeah. You know, the, the interesting thing for me when reading your book, which I loved, um, is that I have so many students teaching here in the Midwest who have had, who are wrestling with in their writing, the legacy of an evangelical Christian upbringing, you know. And we were talking about the mainstreaming idea, idea of queer content appealing to the mainstream. You know, But I thought, look, here's, Here's a here is a mainstream, you know, that doesn't get addressed very much in, quote unquote, mainstream movies. Right. And the the difficulties of growing up in an evangelical household and what that's like, it's extremely difficult to write about whether you're queer or not, you know. And yet so I wondered, you know, like for me, you know, as a as a queer individual in that community, you're driven out of it, you know. Yeah. Um, in a way that maybe one of my straight students wouldn't have been. you know, And you end up producing a book that, about how you encountered and dealt with evangelical Christianity. But the result is is a thing that any student, any kid, any person who's grown up in that environment would be interested in in reading, I would think.
2: Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think that there are a lot of really great queer communities in the South and in these small towns that do sort of pop up and they become wonderful because everyone's sort of fighting against the same thing. Um, So there is that. Uh, But we are, you know, often we can't go back to our hometowns. And many people can't go back to their parents. But I think uh, one of the things that I was consistently told while trying to sell my book was that it was a gay book and it's not going to sell. I mean, we've proven that wrong consistently, like, for the past couple of years. And we've shown that people of color stories matter for a lot of people. And these stories that were. That were used to be considered, uh, you know, universal, or no longer being considered universal. And I think that, you know, executives and producers have extremely limited minds when it comes to uh, to what people want to see. First of all, I think the mainstream is breaking up. I think it won't. I think we're going to have a lot of different stories and abundance of stories that a lot of people want to see. And you can see that in the new generation. Like everyone is, you know, talking about the spectrum and people are talking about identity and using new terms that are wonderful and increase our understanding of what it is to be a human. Um, So I just see all of that breaking up and we've got to kind of continue to chip away at it because, I mean, look at at a story like A Little Life, which sold so many copies. And yes, the LGBTQ community loved it, but so did so many other people, other types of readers. And I just... I think we just want good stories, and we want new stories, and we haven't seen good news stories, you know.
0: We were talking earlier about the Queer Eye cast, which is in Kansas City because it is cool and very LGBT-friendly, at least in at least in Whitney's neighborhood. But the Westboro Baptist Church is kind of it's just down the road, and there are these really strong, very anti-LGBT communities all over these states, just like the one you portray. In your book. So before we go too much farther, I I wonder if you could just talk to us a little bit about love in action and gay conversion therapy for our listeners who might not have read the book and, and maybe read a section for us.
2: Yeah. Um so there are there are so many different versions of conversion therapy actually out there. Some of them are secular and some of them are religious. And Love in Action in Memphis, Tennessee was the one that I went to. It was kind of an innovation on a lot of old programs. Um, you know, it it first began in 1973 after homosexuality was declassified as a mental illness by the American Psychological Association. And it was like the church did not accept the fact that homosexuality was not a mental illness. So they're like, let's do this instead. And (laughs) Love and Action threw everything at the wall to see what would stick. And what stuck when I was there was this idea of sort of... I guess you would say really poorly interpreted Freudian theory. <laughs> we were all too close to our mothers and we hated our fathers. Um, and we also had uh, a 12 step program that was loosely based off of t- Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were placed with people who were dealing with a lot of different sexual identities and issues. And, you know, people were there for, uh, you know, interest in bestiality and pedophilia, and, and you know, some of us were just teens who were trying to figure out their sexuality. So we were placed together all under the assumption that we were addicted to some sort of sex. And I mean, that's ironic because my only sexual experience thus far at that point had been rape. I hadn't had any good sexual experiences. So the the idea that I would have been there because I was addicted to something that I never wanted anything to do with, you know, at that moment um, felt you know particularly menacing, and I think it's hard for people to wrap their minds around it. But at the time, there were two hundred and seventy something institutions in the U.S. and they were spreading all over the world, and the effects of that proselytizing. have echoed in Russian legislation against LGBT people in uh, Ugandan legislation, and uh, and in many other places. I mean, I'm we're still looking into things like the Chechnya, you know, cleansing that's going on, and seeing if there were any people involved in that. I think that it's really it's really been an insidious practice that ha- still has its roots all over the world.
1: And I would just point out to people that you have a lot of good information on that on your website that uh, we'll post it with our show notes.
2: Thank you. So um, I'm going to read from a section that's at the very beginning in the book where I'm checking into Love and in Action, the facility uh, that I went to. And I don't think there's anything I need to know other than, uh, yeah, this is my first day there. Let's get you checked in, the receptionist said. I followed him to another room, also white-walled and empty, where a blonde-haired boy stood beside a table and asked me to remove everything in my pockets. The boy was barely older than I was, perhaps 20, and he carried an air of authority that made me think he'd been here a while. He was handsome in a svelte, twinkish way, tall and angular, though he wasn't my type. Then again, I didn't really know what my type was. On the nights when I'd allowed myself to look up images of men in underwear online, I'd only been able to get halfway down the page, the pixels threading strand by strand in a slow motion strip tease before I felt the need to exit the browser and try to forget what I'd seen, the laptop growing too hot in my lap. There were flashes, of course, hints of attraction emerging in my occasional fantasies, a toned bicep here, the sharp V of a pelvis there, a collage of various dimples beneath a series of aquiline noses, but the picture was never complete. The blond haired boy waited, tapping his index finger on the folding table between us. I dug in my pockets and removed my cell phone, a black Motorola razor whose small screen suddenly lit up with an image of the lake, my college campus's obligatory slice of nature. A few maple trees clustered around a glassy surface. The blonde-haired boy scrunched up his nose at the sight of it, as though there was something perverse lurking under the peaceful scene. I'm going to have to look through all your pictures, he said. Messages, too. Standard procedure, the receptionist explained. All pictures will be taken for the purpose of sobering reevaluation." He was quoting from the False Images, F.I., section of the handbook, a section I would later be asked to memorize. Quote, we want to encourage each client, male and female, by affirming your gender identity. We also want each client to pursue integrity in all of his or her actions and appearances. Therefore, any belongings, appearances, clothing, actions, or humor that might connect you to an inappropriate past are excluded from the program. These hindrances are called false images, FI. FI behavior may include hypermasculinity, seductive clothing, mannish or boyish attire on women, excessive jewelry on men, and campy or gay and lesbian behavior and talk. I looked down at my white button-down, at the khaki pants my mother had pressed for me earlier that morning, starched pleats running down the center of each leg. Nothing in my wardrobe or phone could be considered an FI. I'd made sure of that before coming here, checking my reflection in the mirror for any wrinkles, deleting long strings of text messages between friends, waiting for the gray delete bar to finish eating up all the hope and anxiety and fear I'd shared with the people I trusted. I felt newly minted, as if I'd stepped out of my old skin that morning, my inappropriate past still rumpled on the bedroom floor with the rest of my unwashed laundry. Your wallet, please. I did as he said. My wallet looked so small sitting there, a tiny leather square containing so much of my identity. Driver's license, social security card, bank card. The boy in the license photo looked like someone else, someone free from all problems, a smiling face in a vacuum. I couldn't remember how the DMV had gotten me to smile so goofily. Please empty the contents of your wallet and place them on the table. My face grew hot. I removed each card. I removed a small wad of 20s, followed by a torn piece of wide-rolled paper with the telephone number of the college admissions office I'd written down at a time when I'd been nervous about my chances of college acceptance. What's the number for, the boy asked. College admissions, I said. If I called this number, would I find out you're telling the truth? Yes. You don't have any phone numbers or photos of ex-boyfriends anywhere on you? I hated the way he spoke so openly of past boyfriends, a word I'd so carefully avoided because I felt that just saying it might reveal my shameful desire to have one. No, I don't have any inappropriate material. I counted to ten, breathing out through my nose, and looked up once again at the boy. I wasn't going to let this get to me, not this early on the first day.
1: Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. And one of the things that I love about the book is, um, as I mentioned earlier, I think it's really hard to write about uh, evangelical communities because so often the impulse of the writers just say, this is all so nuts, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Immediately, right? And one of the things that's fascinating and so good about your book is how you maintain what I feel like is a totally honest tension and desire on your part in your state at that moment to, to fit, you know, and the, and the, so the, the tension in the book is between your acknowledgement that you don't fit and your desire to fit in. Is that something that took a while to achieve that kind of balance in the book? I mean, and this is true in later scenes with your father and, and when you go and pray at that car dealership, those are, I thought, really terrific scenes as well.
2: Oh yeah. I mean, some of the, I think it's often difficult to understand why I would write with so much, um, I guess, compassion for my parents, for a lot of people. But for me, in order to really capture the essence of conversion therapy and what it's like to go through it, especially if you're coming from a family like mine, I had to really go back into that mindset at the time and strip away all the labels that I might have placed on my parents at various times in my life You know, to to help me get better. I had to strip it all away, which was kind of a dangerous process.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: And and I had to say, who were they as human beings? Because if I'm really going to understand and show what it's like to have that tension between fitting in and being yourself, I've got to go back there. I can't make easy villains because then you're just preaching to the converted.
1: Right. Totally.
2: Um, And and I think that. It made the book a little controversial in ways that I didn't quite understand at the time. I thought it was just good writing. I thought that was what you did. Well,
1: that's what I would call it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I got some people in their comments, and I totally understood it. And these, But these weren't usually people who were from my areas would say, you know, you have Stockholm syndrome. Um, you know, it's it messed up. You should cut your parents off. And I think they don't quite get the that regardless of my relationship with my parents right now and what I have to do right now with them, this book had to go there. It had to humanize them, or else you wouldn't have the conversion therapy experience. Um, so I, I think it makes it much more powerful to, to say, okay, what happens when people love one another and they still do terrible things to each other? You know, What if they do something terrible out of love that's yeah. scary. <laughs> what do you do about that?
1: You well, know? I, you know, I, I would had an evangelical upbringing, so I respond to how well I think this is done here. I just wanted to let you know that.
2: Yeah, it means a lot. I mean, every comment that I've gotten from someone who grew up in an evangelical setting uh, has been wonderful. So, I think I did the right thing.
0: <laughs> I noticed that you had a really interesting post on your website called "Queer Representation." And I was hoping you could talk just a little bit about sort of notions of, of allyship and and the concern from some of your readers that your story would be straight washed in the film, which you mentioned um, a little bit before that you didn't think it was a, a gloriously queer film. And, and yet you've been supportive of, of straight writers, like for example, um, Rebecca McKay, whose novel The Great Believers takes on queer themes, or um, Brokeback Mountain, which had straight actors, a director and writer, and which you say, in, in your opinion, was, quote, great representation. So I'm just really curious to hear you talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, I really believe, as I, I think I've quoted Garth Greenwell saying, that, that uh, we need a multiplication of stories. We need a lot of different stories out there. And there, there are the realities in the world that, like, a lot of straight people have taken our stories and made a lot of money off of them, and that is an unfortunate fact that I think we all face, and, and we should continue to talk about in terms of who gets hired for what parts, and are they and whose stories are being told? Are they only cis white gay men? Is that what's going on? Um, and I think you know, so I think that stuff is incredibly important. On the other hand, I, I do believe that the project of uniting the LGBTQ community with allies is really important and, and we should be able to, you know, I know this isn't possible for everyone. I have a very unique situation in which, you know, my, my straight parents have turned out to be much better than they were uh, when we started. And so a lot of people don't have this, this option, but I do think that it's incredibly important when, when we can to go back to these spaces and to hold space there and say I'm queer what are you going to do about it um, you know like how you know are you going to continue to hate this human being in front of you and when when Joel got involved in this project of course I was wary as i said but i really saw someone straining and yearning to understand my experience because he wanted to understand how my experience could enrich and and deepen his own experience of sexuality and the world. And I, you know, I had never actually, (laughs) I had a few straight male friends, I guess, over the years, but they usually fall away. And Joel, it's been so healing to work with Joel and to have my story um, really uh, cared for by this straight man who is not pandering and actually wanted to get it right and actually changed the movie in many significant ways based off of my comments. in in ways that will probably make the movie make less money. You know, he didn't give us this, like, grand ending that says everything's okay. And I asked him not to do that, and he did it. So that, you know, I think it's, it's really important for us to have those kinds of conversations. And I totally understand the queer community has been burned so many times by, you know, straight people representing their stories. And so I totally get it. But I also think it's really important as we move forward, especially in towns like the ones where I grew up to have allies who, and, and if an ally says, I want to be helpful to you for us to say, okay, here's what you can do to help.
1: Right. In a sort of similar vein, uh, you mentioned Garth Greenwell, uh, who ha- had an excellent novel, What Belongs to You that came out uh, same year that. as Boy Raced. Um, and he, uh, he talks about some of the dangers of mainstreaming, of the idea of mainstreaming queer content. You know, he said that some critics uh, said of his book w- that it's subject matter, which is a love affair between it, with a Bulgarian sex worker offered a dangerous model to readers who might stereotype queer people on the basis of that portrayal. Um, and then you had this, you quoted him on, on your website. Sugi is going to read the quote. And then I wanted if we could just sort of talk about that as well.
0: Yeah. So this, this quote from Garth Greenwell, which, which is so terrific is uh, quote, there's this sense that the mainstreaming of queer life is coming at the expense of talking about spaces like these, that it's a part of history. We don't have to deal with now that we're all about marriage and kids, but any project of liberation has to be about multiplying the legitimate models of life, not narrowing them.
2: I love that quote so much. <laughs> Didn't you guys go
1: on like book tour together or something
3: like that? We did. We went. We went.
1: To, and you published it in LitHub. Parts of it, I remember that coming out. Oh, yeah. our, our we, parent we, publication. We went to North Carolina during all that bathroom
2: bill hubbub, and we queered it up through that state. Was, <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. It was really
2: fun. Um, it it felt really healing for both of us actually because we were, you know, we're both from similar backgrounds and there were moments where we would check ourselves. Like he, he told, he wrote about this in Lit Hub actually, where he said, um, he said that we were uh, trying to rent a car and this guy, like I said something like, oh, we're going to queer it up in North Carolina. And Garth got like really upset. He was like, why did you just do that? And then like, right when we got in the car, he's like, I'm sorry for trying to check your behavior and make you less queer. It just was an instinct that I had because we're here. Um, and we really sort of dealt with that over this uh, this tour, and I loved absolutely loved that time together. But yeah, I mean, first of all, Garth's novel is a masterpiece in erotic desire. and, and it I think it, it does all the things uh, that queer literature can be best at, which is to to legitimize sexual desire and to actually write in a way, that I think is better than most straight sex scenes I've ever read. <laughs> so, so he is multiplying and complicating that narrative. He's just using one, you know, I, I guess people can call it a trope or you can call it an experience. Um, but I mean, just because you're using something that's been written about many times doesn't mean you know, it's not a new narrative. I think Garth's book is revolutionary. So um, I, I just found that criticism of his book to be really ridiculous. Um, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. I, I want to mention also, uh, speaking of people who write well about desire, a friend of mine, Edmund White, uh, oh, I who should, Edmund. no no discussion of desire in literature should go on without mentioning Edmund's work as well.
2: I know. I've actually had the pleasure of being able to hang out with Edwin, Edmund over here in New York because... Uh, he, he like I actually taught his husband in Michael? Yeah, Michael. I taught him in a memoir class here and um and then Michael's like, Hey, do you want to end our class at my husband's apartment? And I was like, Who's your husband? And he's like <laughs> I, I,
1: I Edmund like, has great parties.
2: End my memoir class at Edmund White's house? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. That's a great story. Isn't that crazy? <laughs>
0: This has been such a wonderful conversation and such a treat to talk to you. Congratulations on this film getting such um, such a wonderful release and your book just getting more and more publicity out of it. And it's just a beautiful, it's a beautiful book. And we're going to encourage our listeners to pick up Boy Erased. And thanks so much for coming on the show.
2: Thank you so much. These were great questions.
1: <laughs> thanks, Garrett. And the film will be out November 2nd. And we'll put a link yeah. to the trailer in the show notes.
0: And now we'd like to welcome S.J. Sindhu, our second guest for this episode. S.J. Sindhu is the author of the Lambda Literary Award finalist, Marriage of a Thousand Lies, which was also an American Library Association Stonewall honor book. The book also won the Publishing Triangle Edmund White Award for debut fiction. A 2013 Lambda Literary Fellow, Sindhu holds a Ph.D. in creative writing from Florida State University and currently teaches at Ringling College of Art and Design. She was born in Sri Lanka and raised in Massachusetts. Cindy, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
0: It's awesome to have you here. As you know, I love your book, which is about a Sri Lankan American woman in an arranged marriage. But it's not the kind of arranged marriage you might expect because your protagonist, Lucky, is in the closet and so is her husband, Krishna. And they have a deal to perform marriage for their families and date the people that they want on the side. And that arrangement's going fairly smoothly for them. And then Lucky's old flame and childhood friend, Nisha, resurfaces and kind of all hell breaks loose.
1: Uh, We wanted to see if you would uh, just read to us to start things off.
3: Yeah. um, So this is uh, from the beginning of the book. Lucky has gone home to her mother's house to take care of her grandmother um, and meets Nisha again. And she finds out that Nisha is engaged to be married. Nisha comes by for dinner, her thin body swimming in an Indian cotton tunic. She's a good girl in the same ways that my sister Shyama has always been a good girl. Nisha helps Amma heat up food, gets water for everyone, and makes cheerful conversation during dinner. Around her, I slouch even more than usual and forget to sit with my legs closed. Amma hisses at me to sit up straighter, to keep my knees together, to eat without spilling anything or making any noises. Sit up, Lucky, Amma says. I don't know what Krishna sees in you. You're like a boy. Nisha giggles and looks down at her plate. She looks like the girls in Tamil commercials, all perfect makeup and practiced allure. She has a face pinched in the center, her eyes close to a long, straight-bridge nose. Amma asks her about her fiancé. He's a good guy, she says, and looks back down at her plate. I don't know how she can eat with her fingers when her nails are so long and painted. And she's gotten her nose pierced since the last time I saw her. When we were young, Amma would drop me off at Nisha's house when she went to work. We played in the green space behind her apartment building, replaying scenes from our favorite Tamil movies. Nisha loved movies starring Rajnikanth, a man hero worshipped by most Tamils. Rajnikanth would leap out of burning buildings and beat up 50 henchmen to get the girl in the end. Outside, Behind the apartment building, I leapt out of cardboard boxes and climbed trees, beat up imaginary villains, and saved Nisha. She pretended to wear extravagant saris, and we sang duets like they did in the movies. After dinner, Amma and Grandmother watch thummel game shows in the living room. Nisha and I talk in the guest bedroom. The bed sags and tips us toward each other. I like your shirt, Nisha says. She looks at me out of the corner of her carefully painted eye. I shift in my seat and press myself against the headboard. Cold permeates through my shirt. I can make out a trace of the jasmine perfume she always wears. Muffled TV music works its way through the walls. How's your husband, she asks. How's Simmons, I ask back. Nisha is on her third post-college program, So far she's quit pharmacy school and nursing school, indecisive or just flighty. Boring, she says, I hate living at home. It must be so amazing to live on your own, just you and your husband, must be romantic. I bite down on my laugh. The room is too hot, but my fingers are freezing. I sometimes wonder what it would have been like if we'd both come out in high school. If we would have tried dating for real. But Nisha was afraid even then. Even when we were by ourselves, she'd never acknowledge what it is that we were doing. I'd like to think that I would have come out if she'd been willing. But that's just another lie. Most people think the closet is a small room. They think you can touch the walls, touch the door, turn the handle, and walk free. But when you're inside it, the closet is vast. No walls, no door, just empty darkness stretching the length of the world. Even during our on-again, off-again high school fling, Nisha never stopped pretending to like boys. She had a rotating string of boyfriends, but none that she actually seemed to like or want. She watches the screensaver of Amma's computer and smiles with only her mouth. I sweat cold patches into my shirt, but my skin feels too small. She stares unblinkingly at her knees. My parents arranged this, she says. The marriage, I mean. He's from India. When's the wedding? The words feel foreign, unwieldy. My tongue can't wrap around the syllables. The engagement ceremony's in a few weeks, she says. Nisha draws her knees to her chest. Her lips shimmer with a remnant of pink gloss, most of it eaten away with the meal. I try to remember what it tastes like. The wedding's in December, she says. My tooth cuts skin. I lick away the blood on my lips. This was bound to happen. Nisha's parents have been desperate to find a guy since I got married to Chris. As far as anyone knows, Chris and I fell in love. I tried to tell Nisha once the truth about Chris and me. It was on the morning of my wedding and I was terrified, but Nisha refused to hear it. She kissed me on the cheek to silence me and left the room. That was four years ago. And after that, I didn't hear from her. Nisha scoots closer and presses up against my side. I wrap my arms around her. She puts her head on my shoulder. Do you want this? I ask. She breathes in and out. I press my cheek against her head. The words sink in. Nisha is getting married. The wedding is in December. Sometimes, Nisha says, I wish you were a boy. This wedding wouldn't be a lie. A true marriage with love and children and nothing extra on the side. It was hard to imagine. Here's the truth. Sometimes I wish I were a boy, too.
1: Well, thank you very much. The book, uh, well, I really enjoyed the book, and uh, the tensions that you create, as, as is clear in the scene that you read between uh, Nisha and Lucky, and between Lucky and Chris, um, you know, are so, uh, first of all, structurally, it's really interesting. I mean, it's a great conceit or an idea, this right idea of, a, of they sort of create their own arranged marriage, right? Um, and, uh, as Sugi mentioned, and as you talk about in that passage, you talk about the closet and how vast it can be, right. Mm -hmm. Did you think about the history of writing about the closet when you began this book? And what does it mean to write about the closet in like 2018?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, I had no idea when I started this book, um, what back in the infancy of the Obama years, um, that it would come out at a time like this. I, I never imagined this scenario. Um, and when I was writing it, I got, you all say, kinds when of, you say
1: time yeah. like this, what do you mean by that?
3: I mean, in the time of the Trump administration oh, okay. and yeah. Um, when I was writing it, I, I got all kinds of feedback from agents and editors. Um, who said that they didn't believe anyone would be in the closet in 2012 when the novel is set. Um, And, you know, a lot of these people, I think, were living in their little New York City bubbles. um, And but those bubbles have burst now. You know, having this book come out on the heels of the Trump election means that the closet is, again, a harsh reality in the American imagination, even though in reality it never went away.
1: That's interesting because I was thinking... Like here in Kansas City, we've talked a little bit about this uh, earlier in the show, but for instance, there was a very famous um, weatherman in Kansas City who everyone knew who knew him, knew that he was gay. Um, and he only recently came out like, I don't know, eight, six months ago on Facebook. And then it was great and nothing changed and he was fine. But it's interesting to me that he chose now as the time to come out, you know, after all those years. I mean, he'd been on the air for, I don't know, as long as I can remember
3: that makes sense. You know, now when, now is when it matters. Um, now is when it matters to really take a stand. And I feel similarly, you know, before, um, before this book, before this election, I didn't, I had, you know, my, my friends and family knew that I was queer, but it wasn't like, it wasn't as public an identity for me, Mm. but I'm glad that this book came out at a time when I could come out publicly and say, you know, because when the powers that be are completely, you know, trying to put everyone back in the closet, this is when it matters. Right.
0: So you were mentioning a little bit um, your difficulties or your path to getting the book published. And the way that people would assume certain things about what the closet was and for who. And a lot of the queer stories that first gained prominence featured white men and their stories. And what were the challenges of publishing content about queer
3: women of color? Uh, I think that... The publishing world right now loves it when you're marginalized in one way, like you're a person (laughs) of color, you're a woman, you're queer. Um, But when you're marginalized in multiple ways that are intersectional, they suddenly don't know what to do with you. Um, You know, I had an editor say that he wished the book was either gay or South Asian, but since it's both, he couldn't publish it because he didn't know who would read it. Uh, There's this assumption that people like only read stories that reflect their own experiences, which is absolutely absurd. But, um, you know, queer women of color have been reading about white hetero men and white gay men all our lives. And it's time, I think, that the script got flipped. And But the publishing world is slow to change, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think back on, we did an episode about um, racism in publishing. I think I can hear sort of some echoes in what you're saying of what, you know, Aisha Pandey and, and um, Danielle Clayton were saying in that episode. And the other thing is that there's also this sort of, funny erasure of, um, what actually is like a very long and rich tradition of queer writing. And I think actually, you know, for me, some of the most influential Sri Lankan writers, um, have been queer writers. And I think of, um, you know, Sham Salvadori's Funny Boy, which came out, uh, way back in 1994 or Marianne Mohenraj's Bodies in Motion or Leah Lakshmi Piafsana Sarmasinha or Yalini Dream or, or other folks. And I wonder, um, like, as a queer writer, like, what kind of queer-themed content you had to read when you were younger and, and how it influenced you and, and how you found community, uh, given what may have been available to you, where you would have known about that tradition or or perhaps not?
3: Right. Um. Well, I – when I was coming out and sort of being forged as a writer, it was in – at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. So it was, like, you know, a, a completely white space. Um. I I didn't know any other South Asians – who were queer except for one person um, on campus. And I, I didn't know any other South Asians who were writers. So I was in a completely like white literary space. Um, and I took this gay and lesbian literature class with uh, Dr. Amelia Montes at UNL um, and we read Funny Boy. She Salvador is funny boy, and it changed my life. I was a computer science major before this, but after this class and after taking some creative writing classes, you know, encountering this story, this novel convinced me that there was a place for my stories out there in the world that I could actually make. A difference in someone else's life. Um, so I, I, I took a lot of um, classes around queer lit. So I read a bunch of other queer and trans writers like Audre Lorde, Eli Clare, um, Alison Bechdel, Dorothy Allison, Pat Parker, James Baldwin, Gloria Anzaldua, Jeanette Winterson, um, Radcliffe Hall. And each of these writers heavily influenced my work. Um, and talking about The Closet earlier, you know, uh, a lot of that, conceptualization for this book came from Radcliffe's Hall, The Well of Loneliness, and Jeanette Winterson's Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, because those, those two narratives really frame the closet in a way that I think is important to recognize, you know, the ways that the closet can um, isolate someone who is inside of it.
0: So I always love when we get book recommendations on the podcast. And of course, we will put those in our show notes for our listeners. And I also hugely love Funny Boy and found it deeply influential for my work. And I was so excited to see recently that it's going to be made into a movie and that Champ Salvadere is writing the screenplay and Deepa Mehta is going to direct it. And Funny Boy came out almost 25 years ago, and it was so hugely influential. I mean, and still, you know, if I think about anyone would anyone have made a movie – uh, out of that book in the 90s in the mid 90s, it's hard for me to imagine that. so I wonder what you think is possible for queer narratives now that wasn't before and and what you also still hope for like what if your book had come out if your book had come out in ninety four earlier like how would it have been different?
3: I don't know if it would have come out um, earlier. I, you know, it's funny that we're talking about Funny Boy because I'm actually teaching it in uh, my Asian American lit class right now. So I'm reading it as we speak. And um, it is every time I read it, I'm just blown away how by how beautiful it is. So I'm really excited for the movie. Um, But I really, you know, think it's important to remember the fact that Funny Boy was acquired and published by a Canadian press. Yeah. Uh, McKellen and Stewart, which is an imprint of Penguin Random House Canada. And I really don't think the book would have been published in the U.S. had Shamselvari been an American writer, because the Canadian publishing industry, especially in the '90s, was you know years ahead of the American one when it came to valuing the stories of minority writers.
1: Um, oh, really? I didn't know that. That's interesting. I did not know yeah. that history. Could you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, how do you, you know, how did that come to be known to you?
3: Well, I knew about it because um, when. When I was talking with my Canadian friends, um, who are queer and whose books were coming out, it was really interesting because, you know, American books get slapped with the, uh, gay and lesbian literature or women's lit like stamp in the back. Um, but that doesn't really happen that much in Canada. Like a lot of the, a lot of my Canadian friends who are authors who are also queer and writing queer stories just have like fiction or nonfiction on their books. Um, and I, walking into Canadian bookstores, often I see like, you know, a lot of queer lit mixed in with everything else. And this was, you know, years ago, um, uh, five, 10 years ago, this, this yeah. I've, I've noticed this difference. So I, I really think that in, in the nineties, in the U.S., I, I really don't know how this book would have been, um received or even if it would have been published.
1: Well, I wanted to tap into one other thing there. since I have the privilege of speaking to two Sri Lankan American writers right now. Uh, and, and it's, you know, Sri Lanka is a place that I have been learning about a lot more since Sugi and I started working together on this podcast. Um, and, you know, one, one of the things in your book that I think we are sort of talking around is like the the way that the generation of the parents, right, of the main characters are so formal and have so many rules about appearances and how things are supposed to go and that marriages can be arranged and that this is the right way to do things they are reminiscent to me of parents of I'm 50 so I'm a little I'm older than you guys so the of my generation uh, you know, Anglo-American Protestants, wasps. You know, in certain ways, right? And although I would say of uh, people, wasp families in who who had kids in their 30s, right around, you know, like or the roughly the age of the characters in this novel would have been more accepting by that period of time of of the idea of their of their children being gay. I just wanted, I just kind of wanted to sort of toggle back and forth between those two communities. And is there a difference right now? Is it is it like? That the Sri Lankan parents in this are slightly behind where sort of American culture would have been at a certain at that same time, or not? Am I totally wrong to think that?
0: I'm not sure that I can sort of authoritatively answer that, except to say that I think um, I'm always pleasantly surprised to discover, um, and I think I shouldn't be surprised to discover progressive history. Um, just like under the surface if I scratch a little bit and sort of you know to think um, of course there are our most conservative elders there are also always always the progressive ones um, who will kind of provide shelter for you when you need it and who will teach you things when you need it and I think that um, I also really admire I thought that you did a great job of portraying the older generations book I think that um, similar to what we were talking about with Gerard Conley on the first half of the show, he was talking about, uh, t- writing about his parents and, and humanizing them. Um, right. I thought I that guess I-
1: and there's an example of a white American family that, you know, community that in which, exactly. in which is very similar, right. Where the super conservative and, and mm-hmm. being gay is totally not an option. So I guess that's true. I'm thinking about like right. sort of the kids that I went to school with.
0: Right. And so I think I would, I mean, defer to you, Sindu on, on some of this. I mean, I didn't, I didn't have to come out to my parents, but I think that, um, I think like our community has great variance within it. And also that you did a really nice job of writing about the ways that um, like, I feel like Sri Lankan elders are like sort of enormously tender towards their children, even when they don't understand them sometimes, um, which I thought was something that was, was captured really beautifully. And, and yeah, I think sort of beyond that, I, I would like sort of look to what Gerard Conley said about um, humanizing his parents and people wondering kind of, you know, how could, how could he do that? Also, like, Lucky's parents in your book sort of just really want the best for her and just their conception of what the best is is just very, um, very square.
3: Yes, it's very different. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I think, like, whenever we're talking about um, the generational difference, we can't forget the, the influence that colonization has had. You know, Sri Lanka and India both have a very long... And very progressive history when it comes to sexuality and gender. That's that was sort of, you know, squashed and almost wiped out by the British when they came and the colonizers, and they brought their Victorian values and um, sort of writ- wrote a lot of criminalization of homosexuality and transgender identities into the criminal codes. And the resulting attitude still survives. Wasn't um, that an exact
1: issue at play? Wasn't that the exact issue at play? The repeal of that law in India? That
3: yeah. Was section a is, yes. section yeah.
1: 377. That's
3: yeah. I'm really yeah, glad you brought that
1: up. Could we talk yeah. about
3: that a little more? So that was based on British law,
0: like British penal code, um, which had a different number, like code 1533. And um, and yeah, that was a that was a colonial law. And, and for our listeners who may not know, um, this was the decriminalization of um, essentially like homosexuality in India, which, which happened really recently. And there's a really moving judgment. The judges writing on this topic is just like incredibly moving. But yes, I mean, Cindy, like, like, I'm so glad that you point this out about colonization, because also just sort of, I have this very specific memory, I was doing a bit of research, and I kind of opened, I opened a book I was researching, and a former professor of mine had like written the foreword, which I didn't know. And all of a sudden, in the beginning of the book, he was kind of explaining myself to me, uh, which I hadn't really expected, because he was like, Oh, the American missionaries came over and did this. And then, like Calvinism and all of these sort of really like these particular values became very influential in Northern Sri Lanka. And I was like, oh God, this explains some of my like affinity with waspishness, (laughs) like with certain, certain, (laughs) certain puritanical, certain puritanical slash Calvinist slash (laughs) like transcendentalist (laughs) interests I have are, are actually from those. And so I think like, you're right. You just absolutely can't underestimate like that influence. Um, so when you saw that section 377 was decriminalized, Like, what was that moment like for you? It.
3: I actually didn't believe it at first. I I was like, I'm sure they'll find a way to not do this because, like, there, there's, it's gone back and forth. Like, um, you know, the law has been on the verge of repeal before, and it, you know, and then the political parties change and things go back to normal. So I was, I was like, let's wait this out, like, you know, a month or two to see what happens. Um, but it, it seems like it's going to stick this time. And it's, it sends such a huge message. In the last 20 years, the LGBTQ community in India and Sri Lanka has really, you know, uh, formed um, for the first time and, and sort of come out of the shadows. And there's been pride uh, marches in a lot of Indian cities and it's just really really heartening to see. I don't really know how long it will take that kind of um, progressive attitude to really infiltrate the family life and especially diasporic family life because I think as an for immigrants when you come over your home country goes on pause. Like it doesn't it oh, doesn't That's move, an interesting phrase. Know. I like that. You yeah, you like it's nostalgic and so For my parents, what they remember is they came over in 1995, (laughs) and so they remember mid-90s Sri Lanka. They don't remember, like, you know, what it is now, um, which is totally different. Uh, So when they're thinking about Sri Lanka, that's what they go back to. And Mm. so I can see how this resistance to accepting queerness is also a resistance to um, sort of accepting that their home is not what they think it is.
0: Yeah. And this is one of the reasons I think, you know, going back to Funny Boy, I love handing that book to someone older. Can you um, guys do the, describe the plot of that
1: novel quickly, just so we have it in there for people who maybe not have read it?
3: Yeah. I mean, it's it's a coming of age of a young uh, gay uh, boy in Sri Lanka, in Colombo. And it sort of starts when he's about seven years old um, and follows him through his adolescence um, and, and, like, to the start of the war. And it's also, I think, um, on, a, on a sort of
0: nerdy form note, uh, I think it's, in my opinion, one of the first, one of the truest examples of a novel in stories. Yes. Because really each chapter very much stands on its own and it, he builds this beautiful coming-of-age arc. It's just, like, craft-wise, it's a really interesting book to discuss. And I think quite a lot of people teach it um, because it's so beautifully written. it does the history fantastically well. And then also just Argy is a terrific character. the like and the the way that it contends with sexuality is just um, it's an incredible book.
1: So I have to uh, to move things away from incredible. Literature into the rural <laughs> realm of pop culture. Um,
0: <laughs> Class up the joint, with me.
1: <laughs> you know, my son and I watch uh, *Queer Eye* uh, on Netflix, the new the new version uh, with the Fab Five, and they are living here in Kansas City. And they are—it's like the Beatles have come to town, and everybody is completely nuts over it. And um, we're talking about the way that. Uh, representations of queerness are are getting mainstreamed or questioning whether that's happening now in a way that is different than in the past. And I wonder what you thought of that show, if you watch it, or if if there are other examples of sort of mainstream, big pop culture representations of queerness that you think are done well.
3: I I have watched the show. Um, I've watched watched some of the reboot, um, and I watched the old show when it came out. Um, So I've been sort of following what that trajectory and I think mainstream representation of queerness are absolutely necessary. And of course they're not perfect because they're not like queer eye isn't aimed at a queer audience. It's aimed at middle-aged housewives. <laughs> <laughs> and so like for the majority of America, um, especially in the Midwest, you know, I, I lived in the Midwest for a long time and it holds a special place in my heart, but it really needs shows like this um that's true and it and it makes me really happy that the new show is more diverse and that they don't shy away from conversations about race and gender uh uh, in the way that the old show did um they still have a long ways to go but i think it's a mostly positive step you know a lot of mainstream representations have been deeply problematic like the L Word, uh, when it came out, it came out during my college years, and I uh, was unbelievably problematic, but it was all we had. Why, so why friends,
1: did you feel like it was problematic? I'm not disagreeing. I just oh, thought we could outline maybe a little bit for our listeners it why was, you thought that.
3: Yeah, yeah it was, um, well, most of the characters on the show were super, super femme and very glamorous and super rich. Right. And, you know, it was just a very, like, sort of myopic and closed view of what. Lesbians were, but it was all we had, and it, and it tried to talk about issues like um, trans masculinity and sort of fell on space. <laughs> and uh, it tried to talk about bisexuality and sort of fell on space. So, but we were hungry for representation, so we watched it religiously. Um, and I think a lot of that is important um, to, to. To have those type of, types of mirrors, like I watched a lot of anime, um, which I, I know that a lot of my students watch anime, you know, they're in college right now. And um, Sailor Moon, The Legend of Korra, Steven Universe, you know, all have all these, uh, all this queerness that are like, sort of built in. And so even mainstream animation is moving toward trying to represent queerness in right. a complicated way. I think yeah. it's great.
1: That's such a great um, point about the anime. Yes, that's true. That's cool.
0: I'm so happy that you mentioned Steven Universe. I started watching that last fall because a friend of mine um, in Berlin uh, really wanted me to, to spend my lunch break watching it with her. And there's a Sri Lankan character, at least I'm convinced of that character Sri Lankan, on that show. And yes. just like these like lovely romantic queer narratives. And it's just like such a sweet show. And it's like as a structure, like like little ten minute episodes. It's like from a writing perspective, also just really interesting the way that it that it all builds. And you guys, I think, are maybe selling me the idea that I should I should be watching Queer. <laughs> I don't watch it. Well, um. I
1: mean, here's the thing: like I cry during the show. Like I get very, you know, I feel like they they do really. St- amazing things. It's about telling sort of emotional narratives, particularly certain episodes are better than others, right? They have a really great one about a woman who's, who's African-American who's in a, this is in the Georgia uh, episodes, the ones in Atlanta, and, and her son is is gay, and, and he has, you know, had problems being accepted by her church, and they just handled that episode, I thought, really well, and it was very moving. So all those things about identity are great, but I also then, and look, I don't know why the guys on Queer Eye have any more responsibility to deal with this than like the Housewives of New Jersey, right? But <laughs> it is—it's a you know—it's basically a, a pro-capitalist neoliberal show, you know. Yes.
0: Yeah. And
1: that to yeah. me, I—that's where I sort of think, yeah, it's great, and everyone does need the message that you know, because you're gay or or uh, not white, you should be accepted. Yes, I, that is totally true. But it also doesn't address some of the complications of capitalism that I think are problems that we have right now.
3: Yeah, definitely. What I'm really excited about is... um, Is that a fair thing for me to say? Is that crazy? I don't think it's... I mean, it is... I think it's unfair to um, ask a show like that to... Like on, on one level, it's unfair because it's that's not what it's meant to do. Right. Because everyone else is know, doing
1: the damn same thing, too. Right. So it's right. It's like, meant yeah. to
3: fix your life. So <laughs> like, like cheers is, you know, super socialist show. <laughs> but on the other hand, like, you know, so much of queer theory and literature and community is about anti-capitalist work that. Because it's repre- it's like claiming to represent queerness in some way. I, I do think like on another level, it does have that kind of responsibility.
1: Right. Yeah. That's, I think, where I come to that feeling of slight uneasiness, if that's you know fair to say.
0: You were starting to say something that oh. you were really excited about. Oh,
1: yeah. I'm sorry. Yes. I broke in there. I, I messed you up. Go ahead.
3: I'm excited about uh, Brown Girls being reworked for HBO. Um, It was an indie web series made by Fatima Ashgar and Sam Bailey, and then it got picked up by HBO. It's about two um, brown girls living in Chicago, or at least the web series is, uh, and they're both, or one of them is queer and Muslim and South Asian, and the other one is um, a black woman. And it's, you know, the fact that HBO is reworking this really sort of um, avant-garde show is amazing. I think it's going to change mainstream queer representation as we know it for the better. So I'm very, very excited about it. That
0: sounds great. Um, I had not heard that little bit of news. I've heard of the show, but, uh, didn't realize it had been picked up by HBO. So maybe these mainstream outlets are getting braver and braver.
3: I think so.
1: Sindhu, uh, thank you so much for that recommendation and for, uh, writing this wonderful book, uh, marriage of a thousand lies and for reading to us from it and for being on the show. Yeah, thank
0: you so much for having me. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us, Cindy. And I will just say that this is the first time, I hope not the last time that this podcast is uh, two-thirds Sri Lankan Americans. And I hope that we get to do it. Yeah, we're going to do it again sometime. So thanks so much, everyone. Check out her fabulous book. That's a wrap on this episode. We want to also mention a book by C.J. Genovey called No Place Like Home, Lessons in Activism from LGBT Kansas, a book that Whitney thought would make a great addition to our reading list for this show. And we want to mention some special things about our upcoming episode, which is going to be for prospective MFA applicants. You can write to us with your questions about applying to MFA programs and we'll have Elizabeth McCracken and Tony Tulatimuthi with us to answer them. You can write to us on Facebook at FNFpod or on Twitter at FNFtalk. And you can also email us at podcast at gmail.com. And we'll be happy to take a look at your questions and see if we can answer them as part of our show. All right, until next time, our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us as always by typing fiction slash non slash into your favorite podcast app and we hope our listening community has a great weekend